Hey there, creatives. Thanks so much for tuning in again. I'm excited to share this episode in honor of Eating Disorder Awareness Week in 2023. Today's guest is Celicia Mazzaro, and she is a specialist uh, working with individuals with eating disorders. She's an art therapist and a licensed professional counselor, and she is a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor and has really made um, this population her uh, her population of focus throughout her career. And um, today she shares some really important um, statistical information about the condition, the importance of understanding the different types of eating disorders, um, and understanding the myths uh, around certain eating disorders and how that impacts clients. And uh, she also shares some really great information about uh, where people can learn more, where people can uh, obtain additional training uh, as therapists, where they can get uh, additional continuing ed or get certified themselves. And she shares about an amazing, amazing advocacy program that um, she is part of through the Missouri Association, um, uh, the Missouri Eating Disorder Association group. And I just really think you're going to love the episode. And that is why we are airing it on Monday this week, which normally we don't air episodes until Wednesday. But in honor of the full week and really being able to disseminate uh, the podcast throughout the week, we wanted to go ahead and air it on Monday. So if you're listening and you're like, why is this at this early? Now you know why. The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi, and I'm really excited to welcome Celicia Mazzaro back to the show. She was on last year, and today we're going to be talking about eating disorders, and this episode is going to air uh, during Eating Disorder Awareness Week in 2023. And Celicia is a licensed professional counselor, a registered art therapist, and a certified um, eating disorder supervisor and specialist. Yeah? And, specialist. and um, she's practicing in St. Louis, Missouri. She's trained in eye movement desensitization and reprocessing 
and internal family systems. And over the past 10 years, Licia has worked in two treatment centers, focusing on treating eating disorders before transitioning into private practice and starting her own company, Creating Your Journey, LLC. Celicia is a member of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals and currently serves as the president of the St. Louis chapter. She is also on the board of directors for the Missouri Eating Disorder Association and a presenter for their Feed the Facts program, educating students and teachers about eating disorders and prevention in the school system. She presents nationwide annually on art therapy, IFS and eating disorder treatment. And she's a faculty of the uh, faculty member of the Expressive Therapy Summit and the Ferenc Institute. Celicia recently co-authored a chapter on art therapy, IFS and EMDR in the book, EMDR and Creative Arts Therapies. Thanks so much for coming back. Of course, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic with you today. I know you're really passionate about it. And um, let's kind of dive in. At, yeah. What, what really differentiates an eating disorder from somebody who has some patterns of disordered eating? Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting because I think the majority of people, if we talk about our relationship with food, there mm -hmm. might be some odd things that we do, right? And we could probably read the diagnostic criterias and be like, oh, I struggle with some of that. But in order to really struggle with an eating disorder, it's more for people who have extreme cases where they're restricting food, overeating food, they may be engaging in a compensatory behavior, and we can kind of get into some of more of the, the diagnostic criterias, but engaging in those behaviors more frequently um, than someone who may engage in a diet or engage in exercising a lot. So when we're looking at giving somebody that diagnosis of an eating disorder, it's helpful to kind of know the different criterias that they need to meet. Um, and socially, I think a lot of people do struggle with disordered eating or using diets. Um, engaging in diet culture, actually, and doing multiple diets is one of the biggest uh, precursors to somebody developing an eating disorder, but doesn't necessarily mean that if you engage in diets, that you will have an eating disorder. It's just a big red flag in somebody's mm -hmm. background. Mm -hmm. um, and what brought you to working with this population? Obviously, that's your niche. That's what you've been specializing in um, over the years. What, like said, like, okay, this is the population I really want to serve. It's, it's funny because I actually had no idea what an eating disorder was and was not interested in doing any of my practicums in grad school with eating disorders. So um I, I kind of was from the mindset of, I don't get it. Why not just eat the food? I don't like, you should have a great relationship because food is delicious. And it, it wasn't until I actually started working in a treatment center that treated trauma and eating disorders, um, Castlewood Treatment Center back in 2012, where I, I was fascinated by the complexity behind an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So everyone's eating disorder can be, there's some similarities, but it is such a tricky disorder to understand and there's secrecy and 
there's manipulation and then there's so much meaning behind why they choose to do what they do. Um, so I, I found it to be really interesting and I was never, I was never bored with it. Um, and that's still true today. So mm -hmm. every day's different. Mm -hmm. The way it, the way it's manifesting for people, it even manifests differently. Yeah. And um, it's great because it's like there's the psychology component to it. I get to work with dietitians, so I'm I've learned so much from a dietetic standpoint. And then there's a huge medical overlap. So mm -hmm. working with their primary care physicians or working with a psychiatrist to make sure medication-wise they're being managed or weight-wise or reading labs. So there was just like these three major components all overlapping from, mm -hmm. you know, a treatment standpoint that also was interesting to me. Very interesting. And a lot of collaboration yeah. to ensure that the individual is their, their entire, um, everything, mind, body, spirit is being taken care of in their treatment because it obviously... <laughs> food affects our health and can affect our vital organs and all kinds of things. So needing to monitor that is an important part of the treatment. Definitely. And the severity behind not treating it, you know, yeah. so what we do know is that eating disorders right now are the second highest death rate for mental illnesses. And the only thing that surpasses that is our opiate epidemic. So before the opiate epidemic, eating disorders was the number one deadliest um, mental health diagnosis. So what we do know from our research that we've been gathering is that there are so many people struggling with this diagnosis that are not really getting help. 70% mm -hmm. of people who struggle with an eating disorder actually will not seek treatment. And there's, there might be a, many reasons for that. It might be because of stigma, misconceptions, lack of education. You know, there's a lot of misconception of what is an eating disorder? Um, can men have eating disorders? There's a lot of myths out there, right? Oh, yeah. That keeps people from having access to that treatment. 70% um, of those people who did not receive treatment, actually 20% of them will um, die, whether it's by suicide or by medical issues that come up from the eating disorder. So the death toll to that, as it goes back to having the second deadliest rate, um, every 52 minutes, somebody dies with an eating disorder. That is mind boggling to me. I had no idea mm -hmm. that the, the rates were that high. Yeah. And this is why I, I'm so passionate about it because I don't feel like the general public grasps the severity behind it and how yeah. it is. So one in nine people in the United States will struggle with an eating disorder sometime in their lifetime. That's enormous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Enormous. And it's getting, it's getting more and more common. So five years ago, that statistic used to be one in every 10. Um, and it used to be one in every 62 minutes instead of, you know, so we're seeing more and more cases come in where people are developing eating disorders, whether it's younger or, or more severe cases are coming into our ERs. Do we have any research or understanding of 
why this trend is happening or, or contributing factors to the increase of prevalence? So I feel like it was always prevalent, Mm -hmm. but access to care was limited. So Mm -hmm. I do feel like now we're having more and more treatment centers show up. Um, You know, there is more of an understanding of how to diagnose an eating disorder. If we even look at the growth and development of, of the DSM, We've Mm -hmm. even added to two different diagnoses to the DSM to kind of help people understand that it's not just about being underweight or being overweight. So I think we're growing even in the psychology world of understanding what is an eating disorder and that has grown the prevalence. Mm -hmm. Um, I do feel like it's helpful to spend some time even talking about social media and the overlap of social media's um, influence in our young adults. Um, Because 95% of those people struggling with an eating disorder, they're between the ages of 12 to 25. Wow. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that someone who is older can't have an eating disorder. You know, I think that's a misconception too. Like only teenagers have eating disorders um, or only teenage females have eating disorders. And that's not true. So it affects every age group, every gender, every culture. Um, and what we're noticing is there's even some cultures that we haven't really had a chance to do adequate research on. So as we're doing some of the newer research coming out, we're seeing that it's just as prevalent, if not more in other communities. So in the transgender youth community, transgender youth are actually four times more likely to suffer from an eating disorder. I feel like the comorbidity for that group of young people is there's so much pressure right and they're looking for outlets for release and control you know and and so it shows up in these like like this I didn't know that that was true for that population but I know you know that they're at a higher higher risk for self-harming and suicidal ideation and, you know, other really, um, concerning, uh, diagnoses too. Yeah. But when you think about a transgender youth and you think about, you know, all of the struggles they have with their body image and with identity, it makes sense that the eating disorder is just an easy kind of fit of how do you control your body? How do you get your body how do you get your body to change its hormones? You can mess with hormones by what you eat um, or lack of eating. So, so true. Yeah. So that it's, it's such an important component of what are we taking in daily in terms of what do we eat every day? How do, what's our relationship like with food? And that's, that's how I go about diagnosing an eating disorder is really starting to understand it's not necessarily about what they weigh. So one of the misconceptions of an eating disorder is that you can tell what an eating, you can tell if a person has an eating disorder based on how they look. Oh, that's so frustrating. Very frustrating. And I get into some fights with doctors on this where doctors will tell my clients, you don't look like you have an eating disorder. And what, yes. they're, and what they're really saying is you don't look like somebody who has anorexia. Right. 
right? And then the rest of the community doesn't experience adequate treatment. Um, so when I am diagnosing somebody with an eating disorder, I'm really looking at their relationship to food, with mm -hmm. food, with exercise, with their body image. And, you know, weight may be fluctuating or weight may fluctuate as a result of their relationship with food or their relationship with using their emotions to monitor food or to have control. But the weight piece is not what diagnoses an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Actually, if, if you look at like when we do diagnose an eating disorder, only 6% of people who are diagnosed with an eating disorder are actually medically underweight. Only six. That is really, really important data that should be <laughs> present in all doctor's offices, I feel like. Yeah. Um, and also just for the general public, for like parents um, to understand, because I know for like teenagers that are struggling with binge eating, right, that they might receive that same feedback from their parent. Well, you look healthy. You're, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, and like minim minimizing it because they don't meet that obviously mythical criteria that somebody who has an eating disorder is waif and super thin. And, um, you can see their bones and that kind of thing. So, and I think that's what we think about when we think mm -hmm. of an eating disorder, we have to shift that view. Um, anorexia nervosa, if, if it's helpful, we can kind of go into the five different types of eating disorders. Let's do and, that. Yeah. And anorexia nervosa is the most known eating disorder. Like if you kind of just, you know, pull the general public, I think most people would talk about this particular one. Mm -hmm. Even though it's the most known eating disorder, it is the least common diagnosed eating disorder. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Especially mm -hmm. knowing the 6% is medically mm -hmm. underweight. So when someone is struggling with anorexia nervosa, they are typically having an inadequate food intake, which can lead to weight loss right? Mm -hmm. But they're really obsessing about weight gain and have a fear around that weight gain. They may have fear around intake of fluids. So maybe they're not drinking adequate enough fluids throughout the day. And within that, there's two subcategories. There's a restricting type of anorexia, which is kind of the general one that people normally think about. And then there's also a binge purge type of anorexia where they're still really fixating on wanting to lose weight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and maybe a little underweight. So when we look at anorexia, that typically, I, I don't use that diagnosis as often mm -hmm. as some of the other ones I'm about to talk about. Yeah. So the next diagnosis is bulimia nervosa. And when somebody is diagnosed with bulimia nervosa, there needs to be two components that's happening. So the first component is engaging in a binge. And a binge is having a large amount of food in a small amount of time. Mm -hmm. And when they do engage in that binge, they tend to report feeling out of control or not yeah. really being able to stop themselves. Mm -hmm. So, and, and when we think about a binge, you can binge on any type of food. So you yeah. can binge on carrots, you can binge on healthy things, you know, what people would deem healthy. 
I think in our society, there's a myth that people who binge are always overweight and that's not necessarily true. So this is also why we can't rely on the weight component to it. And the second part of bulimia is engaging in a compensatory behavior. So first you have the binge and then you have the undoing of the binge. Mm -hmm. And the undoing may come in different ways. So this is when somebody will do whatever it takes to get those calories back out. Mm -hmm. Whether it's through purging, it could be through laxative abuse, diuretic mm -hmm. misuse, extreme exercise. So we're looking at also that compensatory behavior. Um, the third type of eating disorder is binge eating disorder. Uh, binge eating disorder, unfortunately, was like, like in the last second, I think it was two DSMs ago added. Yeah, it's not like, it's hard. Some people go, oh, no, that's not a thing. They really want to lump it back into bulimia. And, um, but there's plenty of people that don't engage in that second piece of it, which you just talked about the compensatory piece. That's correct. So binge eating disorder is actually the most common diagnosed eating disorder. I didn't know that. And with a binge eating disorder, you're right. It just has that first component of bulimia. So it just has the component of eating large amounts of food in a small amount of time having a feeling of out of controlness when you are eating. Um, and they may use food to cope with many different things. So mm -hmm. somebody may engage in a binge for many different reasons, you know, whether it's out of managing emotional stress or it's their way of having control in their lives. So we want to understand what is the purpose behind the food? You know, so sometimes I say it's about the food, but it's also not about the food because it's about what's under the food, mm -hmm. about the emotions that's under the food. Yeah. This episode of the Creative Psychotherapist is brought to you by Florida Art Therapy Services. Florida Art Therapy Services is a proud provider of continuing education sponsored through the Florida Board of Clinical Social Work, Marriage and Family Therapy and Mental Health Counseling, and offers a wide variety of continuing education trainings on the topics of supervision, art therapy, and other requirements for Florida licensure. We are excited to be welcoming special guest uh, trainers, art therapists, Carol Cox and Amy Bucciarelli, who will be teaching a Mastering the Meaning of Mandalas training. It's a three-day intensive training, which will allow participants to earn 20 hours worth of CEUs. And that's going to be taking place April 28th through 30th, 2023 at our Fort Myers office. Over the course of the three days, people will be exploring mandala making as a way to find identity and meaning through the lens of the life cycle. It's taught in a unique format, which incorporates lectures, meditation, music, and lots of artistic creation of mandalas as well. I took this training in 2019 and I was blown away by the content and it's altered my work 
uh, since having taken the training and I'm excited to take it again. And I really encourage you all to check it out. If you have any interest in deepening your understanding of the mandala and, um, helping to use it as a, uh, a source of greater understanding with your clients, I highly recommend uh, checking it out. Amy and Carol do a phenomenal job. And you can learn more about that training and all the other trainings that we provide at Florida Art Therapy Services on our website, www.floridaarttherapyservices.com. Just click on the continuing education menu and you'll get a drop down and you can click on mastering the meaning of mandalas or one of the other trainings as well. Somehow it's, it's a, an attempt at regulation and I even think about, um, these types of, um, the, the different types as it's different than a substance abuse issue, but I think in both cases, it's like we often talk about in substance abuse, well, somebody is, you know, using non-prescription um, medication as a way of regulating what else is going on psychologically, right? Like somebody who has depression, they're seeking out substances to manage the depression, to feel better or anxiety. And I think that that is true in this behavior too, that there is like a sense of relief in the moment that they're engaging in it. And then afterwards is when it that like the shame comes in and just like, you know, um, feeling from a, so bad. From a neurological standpoint, there is a euphoric effect that happens, you know, when somebody actually purges, we do have a dopamine release when we purge or when we throw up. So it's so hard to combat that because they're like, I do feel better, right? Nice. I do feel a high effect. And we are looking at it from an addiction standpoint in those terms. Um, what, what I find fascinating is, you know, and makes it harder to treat an eating disorder is you can't avoid it. You can't avoid the food because right. avoiding food in itself is, is one of the disorders. Yeah. So with other addictions, I could say, don't go to the bar, don't do this, you know, and with an eating disorder, I can't ask them to avoid the food. So right. we have to learn how to engage in it in an adaptive way, not in a maladaptive way. Right. Yeah. yeah, that makes it so challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the fourth type of an eating disorder is called ARFED. And this is a newer eating disorder that we have included in the DSM. And what it stands for is avoidant food, sorry, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are not aware of this diagnosis. Um, and our fit is actually somebody who's struggling with in having enough food or restricting food, but they do not actually have any distress about their weight, their shape, or their size. Mm -hmm. So they may on the outside look like somebody who's struggling with anorexia. However, mentally, they're aware that they're, you know, underweight or they're frustrated they're underweight. They just struggle with having adequate nutrition. That struggle with adequate nutrition or avoidance actually can stem from a traumatic episode such as choking 
They, it could be sensory issues. It could be health issues. Um, so I may have clients that's like, they have a medical issue that happened. And because of that medical issue, they no longer want to eat certain types of food. Mm -hmm. or they choked on something at school and now they have a fear of choking again so they stop eating certain types of food there's also a sensory component to RFID mm -hmm. so I think of it as kind of like autism of the mouth where they are highly sensitive to texture to taste to the smell um, and because of that they will not eat large portions of foods food mm -hmm. groups so you're really working with them to expose them to different types of food. And if somebody has ARFID for many years, they may start to have medical issues show up. Oh, sure. I mean, you think about how food plays such a vital role in our neurological functioning and making the neurotransmitters that we need to regulate our mood. So there's those components, but then there's also like what happens to our body's major organs when we're not getting enough nu nutrition needs. Um, it's complex. Yeah, it is. And, you know, sometimes people are like, well, is ARFID just picky eating? And yes, there's, there's picky eating. And then there's like extreme levels that now has caused distress within the family system where, you know, maybe they can't even have a family meal because the kid is not able to actually consume what the family's cooking. So that's where having an eating disorder professional to kind of decipher mm -hmm. what, what is actually picky eating versus ARFID. Mm -hmm. um, and you see ARFID cases in younger age, age ranges. So I've treated sure. as young as five with ARFID. Um, and there's also some overlaps with the autism spectrum with ARFID. I was going to say, like, I feel like I've been, I, I work a lot with, um, individuals on the spectrum and I was like, oh yeah, I've seen that <laughs> many times. And it's not distressing for them. It's distressing for their parents, you know, <laughs> and some of it, it's like how much of it needs to be corrected. Right. So this is where bringing in a dietitian to kind of assess their nutritional needs and making mm -hmm. sure they are having enough food groups in their mm -hmm. daily intake where, yeah. you know, we can kind of address some of it in a session. So I'll actually have clients where they're eating several different new things in my office. Oh and, yeah. You know, for just exposure work. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Ah, and then the last diagnosis is kind of our catch-all it's called OSFED. So it's other specified feeding and eating disorder. Um, so OSFED kind of is what a lot of people will be diagnosed with because they may not meet the specific criteria of the duration of time that they're engaging in a behavior or how often the frequency may not fit what the diagnostic criteria are for the other diagnoses. Um, the other thing for OSFED that I typically give is, is a diagnosis called atypical anorexia. And this is under the OSFED category. So okay. atypical anorexia, um, and we don't have a lot of data on this, but I do believe that there's more people with atypical anorexia than there is with anorexia nervosa, which becomes okay. very frustrating because the term says atypical. So mm -hmm. atypical is somebody who struggles with the concept of restricting food. They struggle with their intake. 
but their weight may be higher than what is deemed normal or their weight might actually be in a normal range. So because of that, they don't necessarily meet the criteria for anorexia nervosa, but they are still restricting daily intake. So atypical anorexia, I feel is more common. Um, and some people will, will talk about the frustrations of, can we change that name? So, it, you know, people are actually who are struggling with atypical anorexia don't feel like they're atypical. They're actually more normal than the average. Yeah. That makes it, yeah, it makes it hard the like the labels of, of all of the things, right? Yeah. So those are all of the major eating disorder diagnoses. Um, and I think once once you start to understand the diagnoses a little bit, you're able to kind of decipher which which client is struggling with which type of an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And have you noticed any shifts um in uh, like an uptick or downtick in eating disorders in the clients that you see um, in the past few years with COVID and everything that's been going on in our world? Yeah. So when COVID hit and a lot of students like uh, had to do homeschool, mm -hmm. so we, COVID, we started to notice actually a major increase in eating disorders. So in one of our local hospitals, children's hospitals here, we saw over a 200% increase of kids coming in with eating disorder concerns. That now, is... does that mean they diagnose them with an eating disorder? Not necessarily, but struggling with consuming food appropriately or engaging in behaviors that would warrant an eating disorder. So maybe engaging in compensatory behaviors. And the reason for that, that I think COVID was like our perfect storm was because COVID allowed us to isolate and eating disorders love to grow in isolation and secrecy. So we didn't really have interventions where people were out and actually having to eat in school cafeterias or work cafeterias or with peers or colleagues. They were able to be in their home, living in secret, and we were all stressing out, right? It was a really difficult, challenging time, and it, food is one of the ways we can deal with stress. Mm -hmm. So I, I noticed more people struggled with binge eating disorder during COVID. A lot of people lost their daily routine during COVID, so they yeah. kind of used food to take the place of that. Mm hmm. That makes sense. It's just like, wow, two over 200%, even just, you know, that that's the presenting problem that brought them in the door, even if they don't get a diagnosis for it, 200% is really significant. Um, you, you said something that really stood out to me. And, and I think that is very true of addiction in general is that it grows in isolation and secrecy. And, um, it really brings up the question for me when we're working with teen clients, like let's say our specialization is not in the treatment of eating disorders, but we're working with them on something else. Maybe they came in the door for anxiety or depression, or, you know, they're just 
just struggling for some reason, but they do disclose like, oh yeah, I don't eat at school. I, I don't like eating in front of other people. I don't like the school lunch and these kinds of things. What are the questions should we as clinicians be following up with when somebody discloses that? Because it really stands out to me that, that not to say like, oh, this person has an eating disorder, but oh, I should look a little bit further here that maybe there's some other pattern happening that we need to be monitoring and making sure doesn't thrive. Definitely. And that's a great question because I think there is kind of a culture right now to not eat school lunches or to not eat in front of peers. But I would then continue to ask more questions about their relationship with food outside of school. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would want to know, do they eat when they get home? Um, are they eating breakfast before going into school? What's their relationship like with food outside of school? Um, even when they're in school, are they willing to have a snack while they're at school? You know, can you have a snack when you're walking to your next class or in one of the classrooms? Um, for school lunches, if you don't really like eating in the cafeteria, I've worked with a lot of schools where they're, they're able to kind of give the kids other areas to go and eat, um, where they may go to their school counselor's office to eat or their nurse's office, um, just to have, or maybe find their favorite teacher and see if they could eat lunch with that teacher. So if they're reluctant to do all of that, or they're not really eating beyond, you know, like, like they're not willing to eat when they get home, then I start to, red flags start to go up, right? Of like, well, what's going on there? Why don't you want to eat? Um, how do you feel about your body? And then I may ask questions about, you know, what are they doing for exercise? Are they playing a sport? Um, so it kind of starts to just give me, like, to sends me down a whole road of questions. Mm -hmm. And if you're a clinician that do not specialize in eating disorders, and you get to a point where you realize like, uh-oh, I think they actually do have an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I would say you, you don't necessarily have to defer the client to a new clinician, but you could say for the eating disorder component, I think it would be best for you to find an eating disorder specialist. Mm -hmm. Or that's where we would bring in a dietitian that treats eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Right. So there are oftentimes I come in as a secondary therapist um, where I'm just helping the food piece get back on track and then they can continue still seeing their primary therapist or the primary therapist may say, can we just switch? Because altogether the eating disorders kind of amplified everything in their lives. Sure. Um, and what I mean by an eating disorder specialist, we do have a specialization so I'm a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor, and you can look for the credential SEEDS. So it's C-E-D-S, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people can't be specialists in eating disorders without their SEEDS credential. Oh, sure. Um, so I would want to know how many eating disorder cases has somebody treated? What is their background in treating an eating disorder? Do they work with other providers? Like, do they work with dietitians, mm -hmm. with doctors? Because I have specific psychiatrists I work with for eating disorder cases. 
I have specific dietitians for eating disorders. So it's kind of helpful to know, do they have a full team approach that they could use to help treat that? And that makes sense given what we already discussed of like how important that um, face collaboration is because there's so much risk here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there it's, it's so complex too, right? Like I need, I, there's not as many eating disorder doctors, but if you, you can find them and it's fascinating to hear from them of like, I'm looking for certain things in a lab that your general primary care physician may not be looking for. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's helpful to kind of have that background where they're looking for hormone levels um, Mm -hmm. and they're looking for leptin levels and, and a a normal doctor might just say, I'm looking for platelets or I'm looking to make sure like you're holistically, it looks good. You look fine. Your weight's within range. Um, but may not have asked those other questions. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you want somebody who really understands the, um, the, they understand the condition and they understand what are the factors that start to play out in damaging, you know, that individual's health in the long term. Um, I'm assuming that's why they're looking for these different things, because that's going to be an indicator of, of different kinds of tissue damage and And all that stuff. Bone health is important, especially in teenagers. I mean, if you have inadequate nutrition, you can stunt your growth. And if you don't have the appropriate treatment or somebody doesn't know to look for that, to Mm -hmm. ask for a DEXA scan or to see if their growth plates are closed, their growth could be stunted permanently. Or they may be developing osteopenia, which is the precursor to osteoporosis. And if you have an athlete who has osteopenia and we do not know that, he's now at, or she, or they are now at higher risk of developing fractures and breaks and other damage to their body. So there's a lot of, there's even eating disorder professionals that have a specialization in treating athletes. Wow. I I think, you know, just hearing you talk about a little bit really amplifies the need um, for the rest of us to be referring specifically to somebody who specializes and is highly knowledgeable to all the risk factors that we would not necessarily be aware of unless we're staying abreast of the literature and we're taking specialized training in this area. And there's a lot of opportunities for trainings. So if whatever state you're in, um, you can see if there's a local treatment center. Uh, There's a couple companies that offer, that have like over 14 treatment centers plus. So there may be one of those treatment centers locally that you can kind of contact or see if they're putting on any CE events. Uh, There's also the International Institute for Eating Disorder Professionals. And if you would like to become a certified eating disorder specialist, you would go through their system and they actually offer four classes you have to take 
in medical background, nutritional background, understanding an eating disorder. So you're taking all of these courses to kind of beef up your knowledge. That's then wonderful. you also have to have a supervisor that's trained in eating disorders um, for a certain amount of hours. So in order to get your seeds, there's a lot of work behind that to, to have that credential. And that's through the IADEP organization. IADEP also offers local chapters. So I am president of our St. Louis chapter. And what we do here in St. Louis is we offer four CE events a year for mm -hmm. a community, right? So for other professionals that just wants to learn more about eating disorders. That's um, wonderful. Yeah. So there's ways to get trained. I think it, it's, there's so much for us to learn. There's, we would never run out of things to learn about working with people. And even if we're not, I think, even if we're not going to say specialize in working with people that have an eating disorder or specialize in somebody that, um, has a, has trauma, right? I'm not going to specialize in trauma treatment, or I'm not going to specialize in, you know, substance abuse, but it, we have to get some kind of training to have some knowledge to be able to say like, oh, I'm seeing something here that also needs to be addressed. I am not equipped to deal with this, but I now know where to send those people to somebody else who is highly trained in that area and can best serve them. Yeah. And to understand what is in my realm of treating somebody in outpatient practice versus when do they need to step up to a higher level of care, right? Uh -huh. So there comes a time where I do need to send my clients to treatment and it's helpful for me to understand what level of care are they most appropriate for. Mm -hmm. So that's also some awareness and background information that a specialist or a trained eating disorder therapist would know. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to adequately determine, um, determine that on my own for sure. Right. No way. And a lot of clinicians that treat eating disorders worked in a treatment center, which is ideal. Um, cause we got to see kind of, you know, really extreme mm -hmm. cases. Uh, and I feel like that's helped me really understand it and feel comfortable treating it in the outpatient world is because mm -hmm. I worked at the residential PHP and IOP levels of care. Yeah, no, I, I can see that like, even in the work that I do in, in substance abuse, I, go out and work in a lot of different facilities or I have. Um, but when I, when I see somebody come in to my practice, I can recognize like, oh yeah, no, this isn't, this isn't going to be dealt with, you know, you, you need a higher level of care and we need to skip the IOP or, you yep. know, you can recognize, um, where other people might not. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you integrate your work as an art therapist with this population? Cause that certainly is like, I, I would say like a sub niche, right? Your, your niche is eating disorders, but even amongst the, the group of people who specialize in that now 
you have this extra specialty that, that you offer. Um, yeah. How do you integrate that with your work with clients? So I, I find that any form of creative arts can be really beneficial to somebody that spends a lot of time intellectualizing their entire day. So what we know about eating disorders is they're, they tend to be quite brilliant people um, and they can find very fascinating ways to get away with their disorder, but they spend a lot of time in their left brain. And with the creative arts, we get to actually help them shift to the right brain, find ways to adaptively cope with emotions, um, find ways to actually connect to their body and be able to tolerate their bodies. So when I'm using art therapy, I might actually be using it in a way where at first we're just getting them to express what's going on internally. Mm -hmm. That may then develop in how do you feel in your body and being able to have another way to communicate what's going on. Oftentimes clients will say, I don't know how to tell you how much I hate myself. And I say, that's fine. There may not be words to explain that level of hate, but you can in art, right? So we, so I may give them larger pieces or smaller pieces, depending on where they want to start to depict that level of hate. And we may need to do it in titrated slivers, right? Um, it's also a really good way to teach them an adaptive coping skill. So down the road, can art be something or can music or dance or poetry be something that you just enjoy and it becomes a way of self-expression versus using food for self-expression? I love that. Yeah, so it's, it's beautiful using art therapy um, as somebody has their journey with their eating disorder. And coming up, we're actually doing the Missouri Eating Disorder Association is celebrating our 20th year anniversary as an organization. And I am hosting an art show where we're collecting art from clients and they actually are donating it to the art show. And then we're going to be auctioning off the art to raise money for Moeda. Um, and I feel I'm very excited about it because clients are like, can I just do anything? And I'm like, yes. It doesn't have to be about your life or like your struggles, you know? So it gives them this permission mm -hmm. to connect with themselves in a different way. That's so cool. Yeah. So mm -hmm. with the Missouri Eating Disorder Association, I'm also really passionate about a program called Feed the Facts. Mm -hmm. And the Feed the Facts program, it actually started in St. Louis. And every year we're making a lot of strides to extend beyond St. Louis and so far, we're in Kansas City and different parts of the state. The mm -hmm. goal one day is to have it in every, everywhere. Of course, in every school, you know, every kid will know about Feed the Facts is our goal. So we go into middle schools and high schools, educating students and in their health class and educating teachers. We also will educate nurses, any administrative staff that wants to learn more about how to recognize an eating disorder and how to help. Um, cause what we find is that every classroom we go into, there's definitely a kid in that classroom that's either struggling with it or may have a peer that's struggling with it. And yeah, yeah. so we're like, this is really where we need to be. And, um, we do a pretest actually before the presentation to just gauge their knowledge of an eating disorder. 
and then we do a post-test. It's the exact same questions. So it's to gauge how much they're learning from mm -hmm. it. And what we find is that 95% of students actually state that they can identify what an eating disorder is after this presentation, um, which makes us want to continue to do it every single year. So I believe so far, so from 2015 to 2022, we reached over 45,000 students with 1,600 presentations. Um, and the Feed the Facts program is continuing to grow. So any donation that's given to the Feed the Facts program, we use that to hire staff to go out and, and do these presentations. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. So very, very cool. And I'm hoping every state has one. So well needed, you know, hearing your statistics about the death rate and the and the prevalence of one in nine, one in nine kids age 12 to 25 have an eating disorder <laughs> or like maybe 95%. it's not 95% of that. So, but still it's, that's a lot. So you figure in a school that has a couple thousand kids, mm -hmm. That's a significant number of them that are struggling with this. And so it makes complete sense that not only does, do the kids need to understand it themselves, but the, the staff need to understand it too, to be able to support them. Yeah. And to not minimize their struggles or to not brush it away and say, oh, you know, like you look fine or you're doing fine, um, to really just understand what's going on and why they're engaging in that struggle mm -hmm. to that's challenge that stigma too. That's fantastic. Once you do the presentation, do you do any follow-up in like sequential years, like following up with the same student groups or is it if just a one-time thing? Is we go into that particular classroom, they get that presentation and then the following year, we're, we're doing the same classroom, but different age group. So it's like, so for instance, I, I go to one of our private, I, I love going to all of the private all-girls schools. Um, I think my numbers are higher. So at the private all-girls schools, I'll do like the 10th grade class for this one particular school. So every year that class gets the presentation. Um, and we do offer a way for them to identify if they're struggling or if they need help finding a provider. So the follow-up also is giving them tools or places that they can go to, to get help. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're super involved in, you know, uh, politically on the different associations and chapters, you're involved in um, this uh, particular uh, project. How, how does that help? you stand out as a provider specializing, um, you know, with this treatment population in terms of your, your outreach and people finding you? Yeah. So I do think it's important that if you are an eating disorder professional to do some marketing, you know, where you're reaching out, whether it's to pediatrician offices, you're reaching out to local schools, um, I am on the referral list of our local children's hospitals here. So you can always call the children's hospitals that you have or even your general hospitals and ask to speak to social workers that are on staff 
that links up care post, you know, after care. Mm-hmm. And then case management being, team. Yes, the case management teams and being able to say, hey, I'm a local provider. If you ever have somebody that comes in that is struggling with this, please, you know, I just want you to have my information to offer support. You may want to reach out to local schools to offer the support. So it does take a little bit of marketing. You know, um, I also meet with local treatment centers. So every treatment center has um, marketing staff mm-hmm. and they, they will, you know, they want to get to know you. And anytime a treatment center is in town, I try to make time for them. Um, just nice. let them know what I'm doing. So, yeah. No, that's great. I feel like those are, those are things that for a lot of therapists that are trying to grow their niche that, um, they're like, how do I do that? And it's as simple as out reaching out, but sometimes that can feel really intimidating. And <laughs> you can always send, you know, a blurb or a bio, a very condensed like CV of your background, um, mm-hmm just to the schools, or you could always drop stuff off at a pediatrician's office, uh, or just a primary care physician. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to switch topics. Um, but I really want to know for, you know, whoever is listening, whether it's another therapist or it's somebody who's not a therapist, but is just interested in learning more about this topic. What's the if you could identify one main thing that you want people to leave this conversation and take with them today, what would that be that pertains to eating disorders? Automatically, I think of there's always hope. So eating disorders are treatable. You know, I, I personally have gotten to witness clients recover or live in a recovered recovery life post eating disorders, you know, and I think it's, it's a hard diagnosis to treat, but we do have the resources to treat it. Mm-hmm. It's just maybe finding those resources. So just have the hope that it is out there and that mm-hmm. people can recover from this. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's, um, that's really poignant and beautiful because I have heard some concerning messages, um, yeah, about, about the success of treatment. Um, so prevention helps with that success, right? Mm -hmm. The earlier we can get somebody care, whether that's in their teenage years, not post college when they've been dealing with it for a long time, the earlier we can get them care, you know, the success rates just continue to go up. Yeah then that makes sense, right? They haven't, they haven't, uh, created the, the, the body memory of, um, like that automatic habitual patterning hasn't gotten so strong. The muscle memory hasn't gotten so strong. Um, so it's easier to kind of input new coping strategies and skills, um, through the, the replacement strategies. So yeah. if people wanted to, um, refer to you, maybe they're in the St. Louis area. 
um, or the Missouri area, if people wanted to refer to you and find you, where would they do that? So you can find me on my website, uh, just creatingyourjourneyllc.com, or you can just email me directly at creatingyourjourneyllc at gmail.com. Okay. And if people wanted to learn more about the professional organizations that you had mentioned, where can they find that information? So in Missouri, the eating disorder, or sorry, in Missouri, the Moeda Eating Disorder Association is just moeatingdisorders.org. And that's where you can learn more about our Feed the Facts program, um, any, any things that we have going on for that year. If you want to learn more about eating disorders in general, or just how to find care, how to find support, or just education about it, I really recommend using the NIDA website. So that's just the nationaleatingdisorder.org. Um, and they offer a lot of supportive tools for providers, parents, and for clients. Uh, they even have a self-screening tool that you could use um, to just help see if awesome. you are really struggling. If you want to be trained in becoming a certified eating disorder therapist, then that is through IADEP. And that's IAEDP.com. And you could even find if there's a local chapter that you could join or attend CE events. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. I learned so much from you today. This is not my area of specialization. And um, so- I, I learned a lot myself and I think others will too. And I appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really hope that you found this conversation with Celicia of value. I know I learned so much from her and I was really blown away by the statistics and it actually makes me um, put on my goals for continuing education to take more specialized um, CEs in this area, not necessarily because I want to make that an area of focus in my clinical practice, uh, but I believe it'll it will better help me to screen uh, clients that I might potentially miss. Um, so if I have that additional education, it'll help me uh, help them. And I hope that, you know, it, it impacted you in a positive way and you learned some things that will be able to help you within your practice too. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.